Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we're reading Mark's Gospel together, and this morning we're going to look at a story uh, that I think is pretty familiar in our culture. It's ingrained in our consciousness, so much so that we have this cliche that we like to throw around when we see somebody do something amazing, or uh, when it looks like someone can do no wrong, we often say that they walk on water. Uh, This is a story that begins just moments after the story that Pastor Dan walked us through last week, the feeding of the 5,000. So let me read from Mark 6 for us, verses 45 through 56. It's printed in the order of worship, and you can follow along there in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, Walking on the sea, he meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we just uh, sang, most of us, some words together that said that when we seek you, when we find you, we find that you are good. And, uh, you know, some of us sang those words, and feel that and mean that. Others of us just sang those words. Some of us didn't. Some of us aren't sure what what those words even mean. But Father, no matter who we are, we ask that as we talk about this um, word together, this written word, um, that we would somehow be drawn together by your spirit to find that it's true, that you would show us the grace of Jesus, the word incarnate, and that we would find him good, that you would change us by his grace. And we prayed in his name. Amen. <clears throat> well, a, uh, a few days before I proposed to Allison, my wife, I, I went on a little errand. Um, this was back in the mid-90s. I had this plan uh, that I was going to propose to her. Uh, and then after I proposed to her, we'd go back to my place where some friends and some family would be. And we would have this little soiree. Uh, so a couple of days before the party, um, I went with one of my friends to this place called the Chalet Wine and Cheese Shop. 
because I wanted to get a couple bottles of wine for the party. It was uh, down on East Delaware. There used to be a bunch of these chalet wine and cheese shops, but now I think they're all closed. Anyhow, I didn't really know anything about wine at the time, still really don't know much about wine, um, but I figured that since this place had a vaguely European-sounding name, that there may be someone there who could help me out. And as it turns out, I was right. There was this really charming older guy there who was working the floor. And I'm not kidding when I tell you this guy was actually wearing a beret. And he asked me in this beautiful French accent uh, if he could help me with anything. And so I explained to him about the party, told him about the reason for the party, my engagement, um, told him I didn't really know much about wine, and asked if he could help find something fitting for the occasion. And his response was to congratulate me in this really warm, really genuine way. Um, he seemed really happy for me. And then he walked over to a shelf, and he pulled down two bottles of Italian red wine, and he held them out to me. And I'm not going to do his accent, although I really want to try, but I'm not going to. He held these two bottles of wine out in front of me, and he said, please, please, just take these. It will be beautiful. And I really couldn't believe my ears, because what I heard the most was, just take these, all right? I couldn't believe it. I looked at my friend. I looked back at the guy with the beret, and I said, really? And he closed his eyes for emphasis, and he just moved his head up and down, and he said, please. Okay, so I took those two bottles out of his hand. I turned on my heels. I walked right past the cashiers, right out of the wine and cheese chalet onto the street, um, amazed at my good fortune. And you probably know what happened next. I was about a half block away before one of the cashiers ran up to me and my friend and said, what, what are you doing? <laughs> And so I sheepishly told him, the guy with the beret told me, just take them. <laughs> and uh, instead of looking at me sideways, he said, yeah, that happens a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it was good to not feel alone, but obviously I had misunderstood the beret man's intentions. And I want to suggest there is a similar misunderstanding of intention in that story that we just read and heard together, and it can be found in that curious little line that Mark throws into this story, that line about Jesus' intentions that night on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Now, we're going to talk a lot about that later, um, but for now, let me just say that Jesus intended to do this. He intended to pass them by in order to say something about himself, in order to say something about his identity. But the disciples completely misunderstood. In fact, they couldn't have got it more wrong. They think Jesus is a ghost. They're terrified, and they cry out. And even when Jesus is finally in the boat with them, they continue to miss the point entirely. And Mark says that it was because the disciples' hearts were messed up. So this is a really important part of the bigger story of Mark. This is an important part of what he wants to tell us. And it's important not just for the disciples in that boat, but it's important for me and you too, because it is about seeing Jesus for who he really is 
in particular when things are not working out like we'd like them to. So it's important, I think, to remember that this has been a really long, really strange, and probably really frustrating day for the disciples. Pastor Dan talked about this a little bit last week, a few days before that day. Mark doesn't say how many days, but a few days before that day, Jesus had sent out the disciples two by two in mission. And they had gone out and around into the countryside, into the cities and the villages, preaching and teaching and healing. And that morning, the morning of this story, they come back to Jesus after however many days they've been gone. They're no doubt excited to tell him what's happened while they've been away, and they are completely exhausted. So after they told Jesus all they had done and all they had taught, he can tell that they needed some rest. So he comes up with this plan. He says, let's get into the boat. Let's go to a desolate place, a deserted place, and we can just rest there and relax there. It must have felt pretty great to get that invitation. But that was thwarted, of course, because throngs and throngs of people see where they're headed and run to get there before Jesus and the disciples get there. And Jesus comes up on the shore and he sees these huge crowds with compassion. They look to him to be like sheep without a shepherd. And so instead of resting, he begins to teach them. And the day wears on and on and on. And one thing leads to another, and the next thing you know, the disciples are feeding this huge crowd with this miraculous feast that Jesus has provided for them out of these loaves and fish. So now it's really, really late. And the disciples are really, really tired. And this is what Jesus does. He makes them quickly get into a boat, and he says, go to the other side, and I'll meet you there. I'm going to stay behind, and I'm going to dismiss this crowd. It's this hastily arranged exit plan. It's a little bit strange. Mark doesn't tell us why Jesus did this, but John does in his gospel. John tells us that when the people in that huge crowd realized what Jesus had done with the loaves and had done with the fish, that they said to themselves, this is the prophet. This, this is the guy who has come to us. And John tells us that Jesus perceived that what they wanted to do was to come and take him by force and make him their king. So as we've been reading Mark's gospel together, we've seen this kind of thing a lot in this story. The crowds are not really sure who Jesus is. They're not sure exactly what it is that he came to do, but they are very sure who they want him to be and what they want him to do. What they want is a king to lead them, maybe even in war against their enemies. What they want is someone who will reestablish a true throne in Jerusalem. So this guy, he looks really pow powerful to them now. And so their instinct is to begin the revolution. But Jesus uh, has a bigger enemy than Rome in mind. He has a greater kingdom than Jerusalem that he wants to build. So he doesn't want any part of their plan. And that's why he makes this hasty departure happen. Jesus disperses the crowd, and he slips away, somehow unnoticed, off to pray on top of a mountain. And, church, I think this is the perfect prelude to this story for people like us. Because I think that a lot of the time there is in our hearts and in our minds a clash between the Jesus that we want and the Jesus who really is. 
And it's good to be reminded just by Jesus' actions here that the Jesus that we edit down to fit our personal desires and wishes, the Jesus that we mash up to fit into our cultural proclivities or that we mash up to fit into whatever our politics are, that Jesus is always far less than the Jesus who really is. I'm sure the crowds that day were at least a little bit disappointed in Jesus, that he didn't let them do what they wanted to do, that he didn't meet their wishes and their desires. And I honestly can relate to that, and maybe you can too. But that means that we're short-sighted like they were. Sometimes the things that we want changed in our lives, that we want Jesus to do in our lives, they belong there. The things we want taken away belong there because they're working some larger good in us or maybe some larger good in the rest of the world that we can't dream of in that moment. Sometimes the things that Jesus says that really rub us the wrong way, that just sound like a little tone deaf, that just hit us with a thud, sometimes those things are the things that we most desperately need to hear. We'd be healed if we really listened. And so Jesus insists that he comes to us on his terms, not on our terms. And part of growing up in him is learning to trust that. So the scene is set. Jesus is alone on land praying. The disciples are out rowing on the sea. The wind was against them, and so they were, as, as Mark puts it so colorfully, they were making headway painfully. The word that Mark uses for pain, painfully actually gets used in other contexts to refer to torture. So it was no joke out there that night rowing on the sea. Now, several of these guys are fishermen. It's not like they haven't faced this stuff before. It's not surprising to them. It's not a dire situation to them. They've rowed into headwinds before. I read that under normal circumstances, it would take maybe six to eight hours to do this trip. We don't know when they left exactly, but we know that now it's it's the fourth watch of the morning. It's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., and they are nowhere near being at their destination. They're not scared for their lives. They're not panicked like they're going to lose everything like they were at that other time in Mark 4 when they're on the sea. They're just in a really painful situation. They're in a place in life that just stinks, and they don't want to be in it. And my guess is that there is not one of us here who doesn't know what that's like. Doubt any of us have ever rowed into a headwind on the Sea of Galilee. But we do live in a fallen world, and we are fallen people, and honestly, we know what it's like to occasionally make our way through life painfully, like we're rowing into a headwind and getting nowhere. So just think for a minute about what it is in your life that feels painful. You know, maybe for you, it is a relationship that is under strain and stress. 
Maybe it is uncertainty about your future, where you're going to work, where you're going to go to school, how your kids are going to do, how your parents are doing. Maybe it's literally some physical pain, some physical illness, some chronic condition. Maybe the thing that is painful for you is a really hard job that you're stuck in. Maybe it's an addiction, anxiety, depression, failure at something that really, really mattered to you, loneliness. Jesus has something to say to you and me in the middle of those things. He has something to say to us in the middle of those things that we find deeply painful. And this story is a story about seeing him for who he really is when he shows up. So his friends are out there and they're rowing into the wind and it stinks and Jesus decides this is the perfect time to come to them and to tell them something about himself. And he comes in the most spectacular way imaginable. Mark says he came to them walking on the sea. (laughs) Now there is no way to understand the words that Mark says here other than in the plain meaning of those words, although lots of people have tried to explain them in lots of different ways for all kinds of different reasons. Some people hear that and maybe some of us here hear that and we just decide there's no way this this could happen. (laughs) And we decide that because we think to ourselves we have ruled out the other, any kind of other from our world. And if that's how you are, that's what you think about this, if that's how you feel about this, then know that that is faith. That is faith in something. It's a commitment to a closed world where what we see and what we can touch is all that there is. It's a world where if God exists, he doesn't act or he can't act. It's faith in a world that says that suffering and loss and pain, they're pretty much the last word about everything, and there's not much we can do about it. It's faith, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago on Easter Sunday, in a frozen, unchanging, Good Friday world. The other option, of course, is to hold faith in in an open world, to believe that this world is open and it's a place into which all kinds of wild and mysterious and wonderful things can interject themselves. It's to believe that there's a part of our existence that is just as real as we feel real when we smash our thumbs with a hammer. It is just as real as that, even though we can't always touch it, even though we can't always see it. It's the part of our human existence, though, that that we feel all of the time. We feel this existence. We feel this open world when we long for justice. Or when we see something that is so beautiful it catches our breath and we don't have words to describe it. We feel that open world when we hope for things, when we hope for truth, when we hope for right When we hope for forgiveness, these are all eloquent pointers to that open world. They are eloquent pointers to the other, and we can't really squash them even though we try. 
to hold to that open world is to hold out hope that if there's a God, he can act. And maybe he has something to say about how to make sense out of this world when we are making our way painfully through it. It says, hey, if God exists, maybe he can do some pretty amazing things like defeat death (laughs) and some slightly less amazing things like walking on water. And church, this this is the world that the scriptures invite us to inhabit (laughs) because it is the world that we are actually living in. As the disciples are about to find out in short order, he came to them walking on the sea and he meant to pass by them there it is again that strange lines one of my favorite lines in mark's gospel it's strange because we might think to ourselves look if he really if he really wanted to help his friends if he really wanted to help his disciples why didn't he just cut to the chase and get in the boat like he does at the end of the story For that matter, if what he wanted to do was help his friends, why doesn't he just stop the headwind while he's up on whatever mountain he was up on praying? And the answer is that if all he wanted to do was make his friend's life easier, then he would have done it. If that was the kind of help that he wanted to give to them, he would have. But it's clear that he wanted to do something more. He wanted to show them who he was. A little background, I think, could help us understand what's going on here. The the Old Testament, and for that matter, really most ancient literature, is full of allusions to the sea and to the fear that the open water evoked in people because of all the chaos and havoc it could inflict on people who dared to go out on it. I mean, ancient people feared the water because they didn't have mastery over the water. And do you remember what the first image of God is in all of Scripture? The first picture that we have of God in Scripture, it's the image of God hovering over the darkness of the deep, hovering over the face of the waters and making order and beauty and taming the chaos that he found there. It's the first picture of God in the Bible. He is the one who makes beauty out of the chaos of the water. That's what our Old Testament lesson was about that Dave read for us. It's such a beautiful passage. Job is making uh, this case that God is completely unknowable. He's trying to tell his friends, listen, he's completely unfathomable. He doesn't answer to anyone. And one of the things that he throws out as evidence that that's true is God trampled on the waves of the sea. And did you catch what else Job said to his friends? (laughs) He said, behold, God passes by me and I see him not. (laughs) Does that sound familiar? And that leads to all of these other traces in the Old Testament, these allusions to God passing by. Remember what happens with Moses. Moses is called to be this leader, but Moses definitely doesn't want to be this leader. He doesn't think he can. He's completely frustrated. He wants to give up. And so he pleads with God. He says, God, I don't even know who you are, really. Show me who you are. 
And you know what God does. He says, all right, Moses, get in the cleft of the rock. And God covers Moses and he passes by Moses so that Moses can get a tiny little taste of who God really is. So do you see what it is that Jesus is doing? Jesus isn't just interested in helping his friends for that particular moment in time. He wants them to have something that they can hang on for the rest of their lives. In the midst of all of their suffering, in the midst of every single experience of pain that they have, he wants them to know who he really is. Job said, God could pass me by and I wouldn't even know it. And Jesus is turning that on its head. He's, he's eviscerating it. He wants his disciples and he wants us to know that he is the one who makes the invisible God visible and the unfathomable one infinitely knowable. God speaks to us through his son. There he is trampling the waves of the sea. He has come for them, and he has come for us. But what do his friends see? What do they see? Well, nothing nearly as good as all that. They are terrified because they think Jesus is a ghost, and they cry out in that terror. And this does not throw Jesus off for a second. As soon as he hears the, the terror in their voices, he speaks to them. He says, take heart, it's me. Don't be afraid. He gets into the boat with them. The wind ceases. And they were utterly astounded. Even though they had no idea what just happened, even though they have no idea who he is, Jesus still does what he does for them because that is who he is. Gracious and beautiful and full of mercy. Jesus is who he is. Yesterday, today, forever even when the ones closest to him don't see him. And church, that is a grace that people like you and me can take joy in. But of course, that's not the end of the story. Mark ends the story with this short little word of commentary. Just, it's an aside, really, to those of us who are reading to explain what happened. Right? Why were they terrified instead of being overjoyed? Why were they astounded? utterly astounded instead of being filled with belief, Mark says, it is because they did not understand about the loaves and their hearts were hardened. In other words, they get it. They certainly get that Jesus is compelling. They get that he can do amazing things like feed people with basically nothing, like walking on water, but, but their hard hearts will not allow them to see what those things, like loaves and fish being made into a meal and walking on water, they can't see what those things ultimately point to. Like this morning's New Testament lesson from Hebrews put it, that God has spoken to us in his Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. See, Jesus is acting in his world. He is moving in his world to meet his friends in their pain and in their suffering. He is acting and moving in that world to get at the curse that stands behind their pain and their suffering. He is acting in our world to make it new again 
like only God could do. So, you know, the disciples, as we will see, have a long way to go. And honestly, maybe we do too, because hard hearts are not the exclusive territory of the disciples. As even the most mature Christian here this morning will tell you, if they're being honest, they will tell you that battling a hard heart is not something that ever goes away. And the Christian life is this continual process of allowing Jesus to chip away at all of that icy stuff that surrounds our hearts so that he can have access to us, (laughs) so that he can speak to us in the midst of our painful headway through life chipping away so that we can see him for who he really is. I don't know what facing hard, painful situations does for you, but I can tell you that often when I meet them, they just expose the fact that I would much rather rely on myself and my abilities to get through them because I can control that outcome. (laughs) In relationships that are broken, we often retreat into the hardness. The hardness of seclusion, the hardness of gossip. When we face loss or when we face painful things, we retreat into that icy hardness of medicating ourselves to forget. Sometimes with things that look really good and other times with things that we want to hide from others. But church, these moments, this pain, this suffering, this loss, this hard rowing in life, these are the very things that Jesus came to heal through his life and death and resurrection and ascension. He comes to you and me walking on the sea. And our lives are to be lives that are constantly ordered around that continual process of giving him access, letting him chip away at all of the icy stuff that we have surrounded our hearts with to deal with things on our own, like we live in some kind of closed, pinched-off world. And that reordering does not happen as an accident. It, It isn't a surprise to us most often when it happens. That reordering happens when we turn from all of those lesser things and we turn back to him through prayer, through worship, through the reading of scripture, through confession of sins. And we look again in faith at Jesus' beauty as he strides across the waves to chip away at our hearts with his grace. Let me pray for us. Father, every one of us in here, every one of us, if we're not feeling it right now, we will feel it soon. There is something that causes us pain. And we've done everything to deal with it on our own. Like, that's all there is in this world. And that's all we got. So, Father, we ask that you would help us to see with the eyes of faith that we would see Jesus, the risen Lord, as he strides to us across the waves with healing and mercy and grace in his hands, and that we would believe that that is who he is. 
Father, do this for our good. Make it be like when they finally do get to the shore and the people think to themselves, if I could just touch him, I'd be healed, and they were. Make it be like that for us. Do that for our good. Do that for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.